Hello, and welcome to the Middle East Forum speaker webinar series and podcast. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Jeffrey Herf, Distinguished University Professor of Modern European History at the University of Maryland and author, join us to discuss his latest book, Israel's Moment, International Support for and Opposition to Establishing the Jewish State, 1945 to 1949. Professor Herf will speak for 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I will turn the discussion over to Professor Jeffrey Herf. Uh, Ms. Roman, thank you very much. Um, it's a pleasure to speak to an audience of the Middle East Forum. And in 15 minutes, I will uh, present a succinct summary of a book that is about 463 pages in text and another 30 or so uh, in notes. There's a great deal of detail that is new uh, based on archival work and for people who are, even for people who, such as this audience, that is very familiar, certainly with contemporary issues in the Middle East, I think the book offers some fresh and interesting new perspectives. There are four major themes that I want to um, address. Uh, first, um, the um, uh, while President Harry Truman's support for the establishment of the Jewish state is famous and well known, and his decision to support the partition resolution in November of 1949 and to recognize the new state of Israel uh, are, um, uh, are familiar to this audience. The uh, support, the diplomatic and military support for establishing the Jewish state from the Soviet bloc, from the Soviet Union, from Poland, from Czechoslovakia, from Ukrainian SSR, uh, was more important, more consequential. Um, uh, Israel's moment was that moment, a brief moment uh, in the history of Soviet foreign policy when both for power political reasons of driving the British out of the Middle East or trying to, uh, but also I think uh, the emotions of uh, anti-Nazism and anti-fascism immediately after the war were still a factor. Uh, and uh, uh, the, uh, the book draws attention in particular at the United Nations and regarding arms deliveries to the role of the Soviet Union uh, and Soviet bloc. And the, the um, so, um, uh, that raises the second issue, which is that uh, it, due to the understandable focus on Truman's support, there has um, historians have not paid sufficient attention to the very consequential and unrelenting opposition to the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine on the part of the United States State Department the Pentagon and the Central Intelligence Agency, as, as well as, of course, the British Foreign Office. Israel's moment presents more evidence of that opposition. Uh, and it was an opposition that did not come only from the famous State Department Arabists, uh, such as Lloyd Henderson and others who had served in uh, Arab capitals as ambassadors or American representatives. It became an Anglo-American consensus uh, represented in London by Ernst Bev, Foreign Minister Ernst Bevan. And in Washington, that consensus extended to the Secretary of State, 
George C. Marshall, former five-star general, George C. Marshall, and the first director of the policy planning staff, George F. Kennan, who by that point was famous in the United States as the author of um, the famous uh, long telegram regarding the containment of the Soviet Union. And it was through Marshall and then Kennan uh, and Undersecretary Robert, uh, Deputy Secretary Robert Lovett, that the opposition became a consensus within the State Department. Um, the, the opposition rested on two fundamental assumptions. First, that because the establishment of the Jewish state would antagonize the Arabs, it would undermine access, Western access to oil, Arab oil, at a time when Secretary Marshall's focus was on the, mar was on the re economic reconstruction of Western Europe. The whole drama about the establishment of the State of Israel from the perspective of the State Department uh, and the Pentagon was a sideshow. Uh, as the main strategic issue of uh, the immediate post-war years and the beginning of the Cold War was the future of Europe uh, and Japan as well, but, but let's focus on Europe. Uh, that was Marshall's preoccupation, uh, evident in the famous Marshall Plan. And so in that sense, the establishment of the Jewish state was an irritant. Uh, and the second reason for opposition was that um, the State Department, the Pentagon, the British Foreign Office, all viewed the, a new a Jewish state in Palestine as a Trojan horse for Soviet and communist influence in the Middle East. They argued that the Arab states being more conservative and uh, uh, were more immune to Soviet and communist influence, but the Jews coming, including many refugees coming from Europe, would be more likely uh, to advance Soviet and communist interests. So establishing the Jewish state would undermine the new policy of the Cold War of containment. Uh, the third theme uh, concerns American politics. And it's about who supported and who opposed, or who, who were the loudest supporters, rather, of the establishment of the Jewish state. And while there were Republicans, most famously Senator Robert Taft, and a younger, uh, uh, some younger Rockefeller or Republicans, such as Jacob Javits, uh, who supported the establishment of the Jewish state, overwhelmingly the strongest support in the United States for the Zionist project came from liberals, uh, such as the editor of the New Republic, Henry Wallace, uh, the editor of the Nation magazine, Frieda Kirchway, uh, the journalist, I.F. Stone, the then left liberal New York Post, and the left-leaning uh, Popular Front Daily, uh, PM. Uh, and in Washington, the, the leading political figures uh, who supported the Jewish state were uh, Senator Robert F. Wagner of New York, a lion of the New Deal and author of the Social Security Act, and the Brooklyn Congressman, the Democratic Congressman, Emanuel Seller. Uh, so in that sense, in American politics, uh, the um, <clears throat> support uh, came most emphatically from the left liberal side. Benzian Netanyahu, uh, Bibi Netanyahu's father, uh, those of you who are familiar with Benzion Netanyahu's important uh, scholarship on the Spanish Inquisition uh, know that he had a distinguished career as a historian. Uh, Benzion Netanyahu uh, in the American Zionist Emergency uh, Council uh, was, uh, was involved. And uh, the, the American Zionist Emergency Council had close affiliations 
uh, with uh, liberal and left liberal uh, newspapers and organizations, uh, especially in New York. So these liberal and left liberal uh, uh, origins of Zionist support in the United States uh, uh, are, uh, are important uh, to keep in mind. And the fourth point I'd like to make is a point about political language. Uh, this audience understands that uh, the meaning of famous words like liberalism and conservatism, imperialism and anti-imperialism, racism and anti-racism, anti uh, historians and, and many in this audience, I'm sure, also understand that these, the meaning of these words change over time. Uh, in, 19, in the immediate years after uh, World War II and the Holocaust, uh, it was broadly understood I believe that Zionism was a form of anti-racism and that the Zionist movement was an anti-imperialist movement. It was a movement that was that required uh, a, an end to British rule in Mandate Palestine. And uh, so it was viewed by many on the left in Europe and the United States as part of a broad anti-colonial revolt uh, of the post-World War to era in which the British and French empires, but not only, uh, uh, gave way to many new independent states of which the Jewish state would be one. Uh, uh, but there was another element that had to do with racism and anti-racism uh, that was uh, very much on the mind of American liberals and leftists in 1945-46. And that had to do with uh, the importance of uh, Hajim al Husseini, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, a figure that is familiar to this audience, so I need not belabor uh, who he was. But he had a cousin who is a little less familiar, perhaps, named Jamal Husseini. And Jamal Husseini is an important figure because he was the representative of the Arab Higher Committee, uh, uh, the political organization that represented the Palestine Arabs at the United Nations uh, beginning in 1947. And uh, Jamal Husseini gave a, a speech in London in January of 47, and then another speech at the United Nations in September of 47, where uh, the, the Palestine Arabs were well represented uh, uh, by Jamal Husseini, uh, an eloquent and a powerful speaker. Uh, and I, I mentioned uh, Jamal Husseini because he, both in London and then in New York in 1947, he said, that the Arab world is a territorial continuity inhabited by a homogeneous population with one national outlook. As such, it is free from serious frictions and a natural bulwark for peace. Homogeneity in race has always been the natural basis for mutual understanding and community of interests. The creation of an alien Jewish state in Palestine means the destruction of this territorial continuity and national homogeneity. The book uh, gives more detail about uh, Jamal Husseini's homogeneity and race speech of 1947. And I mention it because uh, the combination of the Soviet bloc and the PLO uh, uh, conducted a, a fantastically successful propaganda campaign from the 1960s uh, up to, well, the end of the Cold War and BDS uh, efforts afterwards, uh, that suggested that Zionism was a form of racism and that uh, Pal the Palestine, the nationalism of the Palestine Arabs was a form of anti-racism. 
So one of the things that Israel's movement is an attempt to do is to recall uh, the racism and anti-Semitism of some of the founding texts of the nationalism of the Palestinian, Palestine Arabs. Uh, and that is a long overdue discussion. Uh, and I regard it as an important contribution to the book. I have another three minutes. Uh, I'm going to follow Stacy's uh, directions here and leave time for questions. Uh, uh, and I, so I think for this audience, I'm going to uh, speak uh, uh, more as a fellow researcher and colleague. Uh, uh, I found working in the publicly available uh, documents of the United Nations to be absolutely fascinating. Those of you who've read the UN yearbooks uh, or have used the online, official online system of the United Nations know what I mean. Uh, the um, contributions of uh, Soviet bloc diplomats from May of 47 to May of 49 was remarkable. Alfred Fedorkiewicz, a survivor of Auschwitz, uh, was the Polish representative of the United Nations and gave a very moving speech about the Holocaust and his decision to support the partition plan as a result. Vasil Tarasenko uh, was the Ukrainian SSR's representative on the ro uh, rotating seat in the Security Council of spring of 48 and 49. And Vasil Tarasenko with Soviet ambassador Andrei Gomiko made common cause with uh, Israel's Abba Ivan and foreign minister Moshe Sheret uh, in opposing the Bernadotte plan, which would have uh, deprived Israel of the Negev desert. The Bernadotte plan was supported by Britain and the United States. Uh, two more points, two more points. Uh, the work in the archives of the State Department and uh, the Pentagon uh, has uh, led to a book that includes important detail about that Anglo-American anti-Zionist consensus that I referred to in January and February of 1948, George Kennan, as director of the policy planning staff, wrote memos arguing that the establishment of the Jewish state in Palestine would be a disaster for American national security interests, uh, both for reasons of, of, containing, of undermining the policy of containment of communism and undermining access to oil. And Kennan, those of you who know or read Kennan's work was his, his memos were typically brilliant and eloquent and compelling um, uh, as to why this Zionist project would be a disaster for American national security. You just, I disagree with them completely, uh, but this was George Kennan. This was not, not someone to be dismissed uh, as someone who had gone native because they spent too much time in the Arab world or something like that. Uh, and Kennan had been appointed by Marshall. So President Truman was really up against the leaders and very prestigious and famous leaders of the American national security establishment when he recognized the new state of Israel. But there were limits to what the president was able or willing to do. And one of those limits was provide arms to the Jews, which the United States refused to do at a time when the Jews needed the weapons. And I will conclude uh, this 15 minute compressed version of Israel's moment with an anecdote, uh, which I hope will perhaps become a bit of a famous anecdote. In May of 1949, the State Department was becoming increasingly irritated with David Ben-Gurion and Moshe Sherat. 
And they were irritated because they were insisting that the new, brand new state of Israel allow the Palestine refugees to return to Israel. And Ben-Gurion said, well, some of them can come back, certainly, as long as they sign a peace agreement with us. Uh, yes, we would love to have them back, but at the moment, uh, they're at war with us. So you're asking us to bring people back who want to come to destroy us. No. Um, uh, why don't you put some pressure on them uh, to, uh, to sign a peace treaty and mean it? And, uh, uh, the, um, and they were speaking with uh, James McDonald, who was a friend of theirs, the first American ambassador to Israel, and, and who is sympathetic to Zionist claims. Uh, had been appointed by the president, and McDonald was, was disliked intensely in the State Department for his pro-Zionist views. But they trusted McDonald. And this is what uh, David Ben-Gurion said to him, according to McDonald's notes, um, about the United States. The November 29 resolution was never carried out by the UN, the US, or the Middle East states. Um, uh, he could not recall any strong action by the United States or United Nations to enforce the November 29 re resolution or to prevent aggression from Syria, Egypt, Lebanon, and Iraq. Instead, the arms embargo encouraged the aggressors against Israel, whose very existence was in danger. And then he said, had the Jews in Palestine uh, or the Israelis waited on the United States or the United Nations, they would have been exterminated. I know many of the people on this call or this Zoom session have heard for decades that Israel was a creation of American imperialism. So whatever virtues or faults the state of Israel has, uh, it was not the product of American imperialism, far from it. Uh, and uh, uh, that, uh, uh, that alone, uh, is, is, is something that I think needs to be much more widely understood. Uh, and uh, I, I think that the book makes a significant contribution uh, to changing the way many, many people think about the origins of the state of Israel. So I think that's 17 minutes. I've gone two minutes over my time, but uh, now I'd, I'd very much like to hear your comments and questions. Wonderful. Thank you so much. So the first question we have from David Levine is Trump's daughter, Margaret, has denied any importance of Eddie Jacobson's Trump's former Truman. Wow, sorry. A former business partner in persuading Truman to support Israel statehood. Can you comment on this? There's a fine book about uh, Truman and Eddie Jacobson by Alison Ronald Radosh, uh, a safe haven for these people. Uh, I think, uh, you know, Harry Truman, uh, going to reveal a deep, dark secret, was a human being. Um, and uh, so he was a power political politician. He was a, a author of the Truman Doctrine. He was beginning to fight the Cold War. He was also a human being, and he also was a, a very religious man. And uh, the uh, Truman, in that sense, I view as comparable to Churchill and Roosevelt in the sense that they all are representatives of Western Protestantism uh, in the aftermath of the Holocaust, and they all recognize the extent to which uh, uh, Nazism was both an attack on Christianity, but it also had something to do with interpretations of Christianity. So yes, when Eddie Jacobson made that appeal to his friend, uh, the president, uh, I'm sure that it struck an emotional core, but uh, the emotional core I think was there in Truman's also uh, uh, 
deep understanding of, of the Christian tradition and his view of Christianity as a, a religion that was deeply indebted to Judaism, not, 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 and not uh, certainly antagonistic to Judaism. Thank you. And elaborating on that a bit more, an anonymous attendee asked, the common perception is that President Truman's recognition was crucial to the creation and survival of Israel. <laughs> but you just read a document in which Ben-Gurion said that Truman's arms embargo could have led to the extermination of Israel uh, if the Israelis had not received weapons from the Soviets. So as, has Truman's pro-Israel reputation been overstated? Truman's... Tr uh, Pro-Israel reputation has not been overstated, but there is a romance about uh, about the extent to which uh, Truman's. Well, I guess yes, a little bit. I mean, uh, he he, the, he would have had to fire George Marshall, George Kennan, and Robert Lovell, and James Forrest. Uh, uh, that would have been at the same time that he was depending on these very same individuals uh, to launch the Cold War. Uh, and uh, uh, that I think I think that he made the calculation that uh, uh, that uh, that beginning launching the Cold War uh, was more important than uh, than uh, uh, providing arms for the Jews. Uh, so uh, there's a romance in the United States that projects the American alliance with Israel that that emerged after 1967 back into the 1940s, and. Uh, the United States was uh, uh, Truman finally got fed up with, with with Marshall and Kennan, and he brought policy back into the White House regarding Israel. Uh, but uh, in the 1950s and up, up to 1967, the United States had kept its distance. France was Israel's most important ally in its first 20 years. Fascinating. Thank you. Uh, Philip Getz asks, would you elaborate a bit about why Israel was seen as a threat containment? Because the both the British and the American intelligence agencies and, uh, di and diplomats abroad made the argument that the Soviet Union was sending NKVD agents in the refugee stream uh, to Palestine uh, and that the Jews uh, coming to Palestine from Europe uh, had connections to the socialist and, and communist movements, and uh, uh, that uh, uh, the more that Gromyko and Tarasenko and Peter Kivich uh, uh, and the Czechs at the United Nations uh, supported Israel, the more the State Department came to the conclusion there must be something to this connection between Zionism and communism. Thank you. Um... Jerry Danzig asked, did the socialism of Ben-Gurion and the kibbutz affect the U.S. attitude toward Israel? That's an important question. It's very interesting. Uh, uh, as many of you know, uh, the, the, not only the CIA, but the State Department uh, wanted, understood that to win the Cold War in Europe, uh, the United States had to have support from parties of the center left. And if the, if the Cold War was fought by Catholic conservative parties, uh, that the Soviet Union would have a chance to win the political battle in France and Italy in particular. Uh, so th the United States made appeals to German social democrats, French socialists, Italian socialists, British labor, um, all center left, uh, some of them founders of the well, post-war welfare state and all that. It's interesting that they didn't see Ben-Gurion as a similar kind of a figure. 
uh, that essentially his politics were identical uh, in regarding social and economic policy uh, to to his 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 foe Ernst Bevin uh, uh, or Kurt Schumacher or the um, the French socialists, but they did uh, uh, they, uh, in in the high in the higher offices of the State Department, people were not making the case uh, not about the kibbutz, but about uh, uh, the the reality of uh, so of of socialists who were uh, they wouldn't perhaps use the term anti-communist, but who were non-communist and 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 uh, uh, who would not be a uh, a vehicle for Soviet influence. They didn't make that argument. Clark Clifford, uh, Truman's lawyer, Benzion Netanyahu, Emmanuel Seller, Robert Wagner. Uh, uh, the um, uh, other others in America, in Washington and New York, they made those arguments. Definitely, they made those arguments, but they, those arguments were not uh, decisive in, uh, in in the halls of power. So, one of our viewers asks: In the view of the very strong opposition that Truman had within his government, what was the one turning point that made Truman change his mind towards the establishment of the State of Israel? The president was a busy man. Right, uh, and uh, so you uh, can't keep track of everything. But uh, but on in March fifteenth of nineteen forty eight, Warren Austin, the American ambassador to the United States, gave a speech which was the result of an enormous amount of work within the policy planning staff in the State Department, that the United States should replace the Partition Resolution of nineteen forty nine with a trusteeship by the United States, Britain, and France over Palestine. And a trusteeship would preclude the establishment of a Jewish state. And at that time, at that point, Truman just blew his stack. He was furious uh, because he recognized that Marshall and Kennan and the others just were making policy on their own and it, against his own wishes. And it was at that point in March of 1948 that he pulled policy back into the White House. That Clifford becomes more important, uh, and essentially that Kennan began Kennan be, began to lose influence. Um, uh, over policymaking. Uh, so that was the turning point. Understand. And I suppose we are going to your first point of putting too much uh, emphasis on Truman's support and not enough on the Soviet I mean, block. Truman was a remarkable <laughs> man. I don't, I don't mean to suggest anything. Uh, he was, he was the one person uh, in the administration, uh, not on Capitol Hill or public, but in, who was both a cold warrior and a Zionist. It just there wasn't anyone else. There was Clifford, his lawyer, but uh, he, he could look over at the Pentagon and the State Department, the CIA. No, they all were making the opposite argument. You got to choose. You want to fight the Cold War or you want to support uh, Zion. And Truman said, I want to do both. I'm going to do both. He did it. Uh, Arnie Landy asks, why did Stalin support the creation of a Jewish state? The removal of the British from the Middle East is the usual answer, but the British had already left except for Palestine and uh, turning that over to the UN, they were committed to leaving. So, so why did Stalin support Israel? Because the British were not committed to leaving the military bases in the Middle East. Uh, and, uh, uh, and they hoped that the war would turn out in a way that would, that would give them military bases in the Negev and uh, that uh, that they could keep the, the Jewish state much much smaller than it original than it was intended to be, uh, and uh, that it was not a done deal. Uh, 
the war was 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 yet to be won. Uh, so uh, uh, no, he the, the British had agreed to leave, but that didn't mean they they had agreed to to leave the region or or leave Palestine completely. Uh, the uh, uh, so uh, you know. It, it, it wasn't a great deal, it didn't take an enormous amount of effort or time or money or whatever. Well, why not try? Maybe, maybe this is a way of, of weakening Western influence and getting control over the oil that Arab need, that Europe needs. Um, and uh, uh, then in the first Israeli elections, the Communist Party, I think, got 3.5% of the vote. And uh, the pro-Soviet, uh, I think it was Mapam, I, I don't want to make a mistake and get the wrong party. The, but but the, the pro-Soviet vote was was about thirteen. I mean, they, they had other. They were not a communist party, but they were they were quote as we say soft on communism. Uh, but the but Ben Gurion was able to form his first government with a coalition that didn't include either of those parties. And at that point, Stalin understood that his that his bet, his effort, uh, uh, didn't work out, and uh, that the new state of Israel was not going to be uh, a uh, in his camp. As it were, and uh, and then he he and then he reverted to his own more natural anti-Semitism and uh, uh, and and uh, more conventional Marxism-Leninism too, because uh, the Soviet policy of 1935-39, 1941-47 were exceptions in the in the longer history of Soviet foreign policy in which the Soviet Union sought for various reasons. Uh, uh, alliances with the West, um, but that 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 ended uh, in 1940. Uh, in the, well, uh, in the fall of 1940. Well, well, the the summer of 1949, really, with the beginning of the purges. Wonderful. And before we go, can you tell our viewers where we can find some more of your work? Oh, well, <laughs> it's all. <laughs> it's all there on Amazon. The, the Jewish enemy is the study of Nazi propaganda during World War II in Germany. Nazi propaganda for the Arab world is the study of uh, Nazi pro of, of that of Nazi Germany's Arabic language uh, efforts. Uh, undeclared wars with Israel is the study of uh, uh, East German and Soviet bloc and West German leftist antagonism. Uh, divided memory. Uh, I think maybe back in print is about the uh, uh, history of the politics and memory of the Holocaust in East and West Germany. I'm a historian of modern German history. So the, the, this is my first book that's not about German history, but it's obviously about, about the aftermath, uh, one aspect uh, of, uh, of the aftermath. Uh, so, uh, yeah, all those, they're, they're in print uh, and uh, available you know, through the publishers or through on, or on Amazon. Um, so thanks for asking. Absolutely. And I also posted the link to your latest book in our chat. That's very kind of you. Thank you. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I uh, uh, will be uh, writing a paper, there'll be a paperback edition and a preface. And so I, you know, for, for this audience, a very informed and engaged audience, uh, any of your comments about the book or, uh, you know, please. Uh, my email is is uh, is at, at the University of Maryland uh, webpage, jherf at umd.edu. So if you have comments or criticisms or suggestions or whatever, I'd be glad to hear. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, we've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you again, Professor Herf, for joining us today.
Okay. Well, thanks very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Of course. For our viewers, please join us Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern for Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.